one of the things I hate most about Christmas can be summed up in two words. Assembly required. Children's toys always have a billion parts, and the blueprints are more complex than computer algorithms. Putting together a, a children's toy is harder than putting together something from Ikea. I mean, it's near impossible. And to be honest, if I weren't married to Chelsea, all of those toys would be promptly returned to the store. Uh, I do not have an ability or an acumen for such things. But I have found, as exemplified yesterday, as I built a, a Hulk figurine with Elliot at, the, at Lowe's, if all the materials are included and the instructions for the project are clearly laid out, or if I can cheat off someone else, even I, if I listen to those instructions, can follow the pattern. Good blueprints make clear how each piece fits together with the whole and what the whole is designed to do. And so what good manufacturers do is they supply all the necessary pieces along with all the necessary instructions so that you can have a successful project with whatever it is that you're building or putting together. In our text this morning, which is the latter half of Exodus, really. Uh, we're going to cover Exodus chapters 25 through 27, as well as chapters 35 through 40. What we're going to see is that God is a good manufacturer, if you will. He is the benevolent creator who supplies his people with good blueprints and all the pieces necessary for them to build his tabernacle. Uh, the word tabernacle actually means dwelling or the place he lives. They're going to build God's house. You see, God desires to live among his people. He desires to live among the Israelites. And so he says, build me a suitable home. And a suitable home for God will be majestic. But he does more than just demand the building of what will become his portable palace he supplies all that it's necessary for its construction. That, that's our, our main idea this morning, is that God supplies what he demands. He provides all that is necessary for relationship with him. Tabernacle is also known as the, the tent of meaning, meeting, and it not only teaches us about God's holiness and his majesty and his grace, but it's also how God will show himself to be present among his people. I'm going to tackle this project in three parts. We're going to look at the furniture, the layout, and the financing. Furniture, layout, financing. I really, really wanted to go the alliteration route and call layout feng shui, but there are too many spiritual and religious overtones with that terminology. So just know I'd still love alliteration. Avoided it on purpose. Let's, uh, let's pray and get into the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your beauty covers our deformities. And your word washes us clean of our selfishness and of our sin. We pray that you would remind us again this morning that you don't love some future version of us that, that has it all together and obeys perfectly. That you love us right now. And that you've given us grace upon grace that we might know you more deeply and walk with you more intimately. 
We pray that this would be the result of our time spent together this morning, learning about who you are and how you live among your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know about you, but whenever I put something together, the first thing I like to do is make sure I have all the most important pieces. And so if I'm assembling like a a jigsaw puzzle or a children's puzzle, it doesn't really matter. I get all those edge pieces, especially the corners first, so I can kind of see where I'm going. Likewise, God is going to give instructions to Moses about the tabernacle, and he begins with the most important piece, which is the Ark of the Covenant. Unlike a puzzle, however, God is working from the center of the tabernacle outwards, right? But still, he's starting with what's the most important piece, and that is going to be uh, the Ark. And it's described in chapter 25, starting in verse 10. I'm not going to read all of those verses. There's a whole uh, litany of them, but I'm going to simply describe to you the furniture and the function of that furniture within God's house or the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. The ark is the focus of God's presence with his people. It's the central point of contact between heaven and earth. It's really a symbol of of heaven on earth, if if you will. Uh, You have before you, I put in your insert there, uh, a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. It's the the all gold box looking thing. Uh, It looks like uh, kind of like it's been dipped in gold. And it is very precious. Even the poles that are used to carry the Ark are consumed by gold. Uh, The Ark was so precious, in fact, that uh, there's that wonderful account of of a guy who he didn't secure it properly and and it looks like it's going to fall to the ground that he reaches out and he touches the ark and God kills him because it's so holy. It represents where God's holy presence dwells with his people. And on top of the ark, that box-looking thing, sit two angels that are called cherubim. And they're also made entirely of gold, and if you remember cherubim from the Garden of Eden, when uh, Adam and Eve are cursed and they're sent out of the garden, they go east of Eden, and God places an angel, a cherubim with a flaming sword that spins to make sure they don't come back in. Right? Angels are warriors; they're awesome in their power. They're not soft and, and cutesy, uh, despite what ceramic figurines and television might teach us. They are to be feared. They're wondrous creatures. And these cherubim face one another with their faces bowed down towards the ground in worship of the holy God who dwells between them. The cherubim, uh, they face each other and, and they face down towards the mercy seat or atonement cover, which is also made entirely of gold. And between them, between their arms, which go forward with their faces down, this is where it was said the presence of God actually dwelt in a particularly powerful way when he descended. One commentator writes, Since any image of God was strictly forbidden, the best Israel can do is make an image of those beings closest to him. These mighty cherubim bow down before the majestic God of the universe in worship. He is the greatest being in all of creation. He is the only one that's worthy of worship. And they serve, these cherubim serve to remind us of the reverence with which we must approach our holy God and King. God's holiness is emphasized not only by the bowing cherubim, but also by this mercy seat or atonement cover that's on the ark. 
It's kind of like a lid inside. There was some special stuff. We talked about it earlier in Exodus. Uh, but on top of the lid there would be, is where sacrifice would be made for the sins of the people. It was on top of this lid, this atonement cover, that God's justice and mercy were revealed every year on the Day of Atonement. This, on this day, the high priest would come in and make atonement for the people by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. And through the, this mercy seat, through this action, God was revealing that sinners can enjoy relationship with him only when they come with a mediator and through blood. Like the rest of the temple, the ark is aimed at teaching us, the atonement cover is aimed at teaching us about Jesus' death and resurrection. It's aimed at teaching us about God's holiness and his justice. Blood uh, on the altar that's poured on the altar by that priest on the Day of Atonement once a year represents for us uh, the cost of our sin against God. Sin and death shows us that we're separated from God. And it anticipates the paying of that penalty by Jesus Christ. Right? Humanity is only able to enjoy relationship with God because God himself became our mediator and was bloodied. Blood sprinkled on the ark foreshadowed the blood that would be spilled by Jesus. The cross is where God's justice and mercy are revealed perfectly. We, we see a glimpse of them here on the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant, but that is just mere anticipation of what is to come. Next piece of furniture in God's home is something every home needs, right? A table. Um, it's primarily for food. Uh, it's a dining table of sorts, right? Uh, except for the fact his is dipped in gold. It's much like a, a table any of us would have in our home. Food is served on it. And, and the reason for this is, is to symbolize the fact that God really was living among his people and that he inhabited his house in much the same way they would, the Israelites would inhabit their homes, more important than the table itself, though, were the 12 loaves that were set upon it. Uh, they obviously represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and they served as a reminder that every person of every family of every tribe had a seat at God's table. It showed that Yahweh was in real fellowship with his people, with Israel, that he was doing life together with them. Uh, the bread would actually be replaced weekly on the Sabbath, and then the, the priests would eat the old bread. And so there, there was always a meal on the table to show that this was a continuing relationship between God and his people. And just as God had provided heaven's bread to sustain, to sustain the people in the wilderness, now on the table of the bread of presence, uh, it would remind them of his provision for them and their fellowship with him. And that's what God has done for us in providing heaven's bread to sustain the church, right? Jesus tells us in John 6, 36, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Like Israel, we are reminded of God's provision for us and our fellowship with him and one another when we eat from his table and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Like the bread of presence, the bread of life reminds us that we are in the light of God's presence. And this is a presence that is symbolized by the next item in God's house, which is a lampstand. Not just any lampstand, though. This is a golden lampstand. This lamp was hammered out of one piece of solid, pure gold and fashioned to look a little bit like uh, a tree, nice as 
It is. It's not something that you're going to find in your local department store or like at Pottery Barn, anything like that. This is super valuable, priceless kind of stuff, pure gold. Uh, it's actually modeled a little bit after a flowering almond tree, and that's to bring up images to our minds of the tree of life. It, it, what happened with this lamb, it sat across from uh, the, the table where the bread of presents sat, and it illumined that area. It's always kept burning. Again, this is another reminder to Israel that they have been taken out of the darkness of slavery and adopted as sons who get to enjoy the light of God's presence. Like the items before it, however, the lamp, or like the items before it, the lamp is also a shadow of what is to come. Right? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then Paul comments in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, everlasting life, true abundant life, is found only in the light of God's presence. And those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light are called to illumine the pitch black realm of men. I mean, Jesus tells us, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light that ushers his followers into the very presence of God. It's through him alone that we have fellowship with the Lord of the universe. And as his followers, we are to be light in a dark place. I wonder, how are you lighting the world? How are you showing others the way into God's presence? last piece of furniture in the tabernacle is the altar of incense. This too is overlaid with gold, has four horns on its four corners, and was placed directly in front of the veil of the most holy place. It stood about three feet high and one and one-half foot wide. Uh, twice a day at dawn and at dusk, incense was to be offered on this miniature altar, uh, and incense was a little bit like the Febreze of the ancient culture, right? It was smelling good in there as that incense went. Uh, though the purpose of the in altar of incense is really unclear from Scripture. And so there are a variety of suggestions. Some posit that uh, it's to counter the smell of dead animals, which would have filled the tabernacle and the whole area because of the continual sacrifices being made. Uh, others have insisted that it was there to protect the priest, and so uh, the altar was at this altar of incense is actually placed right before uh, the veil, and in front of the veil, you'd have to like go around to get to the Ark of the Covenant, and so uh, the incense would make kind of a cloud and go in front of there, and they're saying it was, it, the function it performed was to keep the priest from accidentally looking at the Ark of the Covenant and dying, right? And so it was to protect the priest from God's presence, uh, Personally, though, I like what Douglas Stewart proposes in his commentary. He writes this, The fragrant smoke from burning incense symbolized prayer in the biblical world. 
Uh, He argues from various parts of Scripture to bolster his case, but perhaps the most convincing portion of his argument is the explicit relationship between incense and prayer throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, Just for example, Revelation 5, 8 says, they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And, And so if Stuart is correct, we can assume that Moses and the Israelites understood that the incense altar had as its purpose the symbolizing of the prayers of Israel as they were made throughout the land. And that perpetual burning of incense reflected the way that the people prayed at all times of the day and all times of the night. And so inasmuch as the high priest was always consciously representing the people before God in his actions in the tabernacle, uh, his offering of incense was a means of portraying the prayers of the whole people. Whatever it means, whatever the purpose of the altar of incense is, uh, we can see that it still points us to Jesus. Right? If it's to cover over the smell of dead animals, we can remember that Jesus forever covers over the stench of death with his precious blood. If it's to protect those within the tabernacle from the holy presence of God, we can remember as those who deserve the wrath of God that we are protected by his righteous anger when we hide ourselves in Christ. If it's, because, if it's the prayers of the saints, we can be reminded that Jesus ever lives and prays for his people. Jesus is at the very center of the teaching of the tabernacle. Indeed, he's at the very center of all of Scripture. The Old Testament tells us about the one who is to come. That's Jesus. The the Gospels tell us Jesus has arrived. And then the rest of the Bible tells us what to do as we wait for him to come again. It's all about Jesus. As those who have triumphed by grace through faith in Christ, I think Christians are uh, to follow Uh, Jesus, as Paul said, and always be led by him in triumphal procession because it's through us that he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him to all places. We are to be uh, like incense in our culture. I wonder if we smell like the gospel. Does your life reek of Jesus? That's the inside of the tabernacle. Uh, Let's look at some of the stuff in God's yard. It's enclosed on all four sides, and so technically it's a courtyard. And there are actually only two items in the yard, so no lawn gnomes or pink flamingos or anything like that. Uh, Instead, there's just a bronze basin for ceremonial washing, which we're going to talk a little bit more about next time, and the bronze altar that separates it from the tent. Bronze altar is also called the altar of burnt offering, uh, but it's called the bronze altar because it's dipped in bronze. Really, really clever. Uh, Anyhow, it's made from a hollow wooden box that measured seven and a half feet long and wide and stood four and a half feet high. What that means, it's really, really big, right? Uh, So all of its instruments, the altars have all covered in bronze, which is an interesting thing to recognize when you see inside the tabernacle, everything is made of gold. And so uh, the further away we get from God, the less valuable the material Right? And, and this is on purpose. It's to show us that, uh, how God is holy and more valuable than all things. And, and, and as we get closer to the presence of God, we, we're really experiencing something of great value. This massive altar also reminded the people of the massive gap between God and themselves. There had to be sacrifice for them to enjoy fellowship with God. And the sacrifices made on this bronze altar all anticipated the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Only Jesus can close the gap between God and man. 
No one can come to God without the shedding of blood. I mean, this is how the cross and how the sacrificial system of the Old Testament exposes us. Is that we, it tells us that we are all sinners and that God had to send someone. Someone had to die in order for us to have fellowship with him. Friends, I pray that you would trust in the blood of Christ and embrace the gift of salvation. Uh, that's the furniture. Let's talk about the layout. God's courtyard is enclosed by uh, God's version of a white picket fence. Tabernacle fence guarded about 10,000 square feet and separated his property from the rest of the encampment. Uh, by way of comparison, this is roughly the size of four tennis courts. Uh, the tent of meeting took up less than 1,000 square feet, and so there's plenty of open area going on around there. The courtyard fence consisted of 60 pillars set into 60 bases and was joined by white linen curtains. The fence was nearly eight feet tall, uh, which permitted people to see the outside and the smoke kind of rising up, but they couldn't really see what was happening inside. There's only one way into the courtyard, and it's on the east side where there was a 30-foot wide gated entrance. And it, that's important to note because if you remember, uh, Adam and Eve are cast out of the east side of the garden, right? And then there's the cherubim with the flaming sword. You'll notice that the curtains have cherubim embroidered on them. And so as they enter back into God's presence, they enter from the east. And, and what this is showing us is that God is making a way, has made a way for people to get back into his presence, right? Back into that uh, Edenic scene when all was well, when the whole world was at peace, when things were as they ought and God walked with Adam. This is a, a foretaste of that. It's a picture of that. And so the people are entering from the east. And Riken notes that the entrance was made of the same cloth that adorned the inside of the tabernacle, white linen embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. This established a connection between the entrance to the tabernacle and what went on inside. It was the gateway to the holy place where God was. Tabernacle fence makes clear that though God dwells in the middle of the Israelite camp, he is still separate from them. I mean, these curtain walls kept the people of the king outside of the palace of the king and apart from the intimate presence of the king. When one stepped through the eastern gate into the courtyard, the gravity of God's holy presence was unmistakably heavy as you would smell the scent of sacrifices being made and see the blood of animals thrown about. This was holy ground. And the truth about man's separation from God by sin was made plain. Hundreds of people, hundreds of sacrifices, hundreds worshiping, God. I mean, this outer court, God's front yard, was so, it was as far as normal Jewish people or converted Gentiles could get. That's as close as they could get to God. They could come no closer. They're not permitted to enter the tabernacle. Uh, Israel is living in tents at this point. Tabernacle is kind of a fancy word for tent, right? Uh, it's tent of meeting, tabernacle. And so God also lives in a tent. It's at the center of their camp, and it would have dwarfed the rest of their homes on purpose, right? To its central location and its grandeur would highlight Yahweh's kingship and his rule over the people. The tabernacle is basically constructed of a bunch of curtains and frames. Curtains covering the entire structure are to be made of fine linen and colored yarn and covered in goat hair, 
which I guess the goat here would be to help them not weather as badly, it would prevent weathering on the curtains. Uh, the cherubim are to be worked into these things uh, as an ever-present reminder that the tabernacle is an earthly representation of God's heavenly palace. Uh, as grand and as awesome as the tabernacle is, even though it represents uh, something of heaven on earth, it only has two rooms, right? It's a small place. Uh, you can think of the, the two rooms, right? The front room, which you can think of like a living room slash dining room. This is known as the holy place. And then there's a back room, which you can think of like a personal bedroom or God's throne room, known as the holy of holies. In the front room, there were three pieces of golden furniture. Uh, we already talked about them. The table, the lampstand, and the incense altar. In the back room, there was only the Ark of the Covenant. And that's the place where the presence of God sat enthroned between the cherubim. This throne room, the, the holy of holies, was divided, if you look at your uh, awesome insert there, right, <laughs> is divided by this veil, this curtain and it's blue and red and gold. It has those cherubim motifs uh, all across it. And again, this setup is aimed at teaching us about God's holiness, his justice, and his grace. The veil of the throne room and the curtains of the tabernacle are actually not to keep people from the presence of God, but to protect them from the presence of God. Because if they were to enter into God's presence without blood sacrifice as sinners, they would be consumed by his righteous wrath, right? We can only enjoy fellowship with God through blood sacrifice. And at this point in history, his holiness needed to remain veiled lest he break out against the people and kill them. You see, the, the three-part structure of the tabernacle moves from lesser to greater degrees of holiness, and, and it reflects the gradations of holiness seen on Mount Sinai, right? At Mount Sinai, only Moses was allowed to go up the mountain and meet with God. He was the mediator, the man who represented the people before God. The elders were allowed to approach God and even to commune with him, but they could only go a little bit up the mountain. Then down at the bottom of the mountain were the rest of God's people who were not allowed to approach him at all, but had to stay off of his holy mountain. So likewise, the structure of the tabernacle dictated that the people be kept outside. They could go into the courtyard, but they were not allowed to enter the tent of meeting. The priests were allowed to go halfway or partway. They were allowed to go a little bit further, but they could not enter the holy place. The most holy place could only be entered by the high priest once a year. He was the man who represented the people before God. One man could go behind the sacred veil into God's presence, and he had to go with blood. Blood sacrifice is required because God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is, its holiness. Whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. That's sickness, that's sin, that's evil. God must and will destroy all that is unholy and threatens the well-being of his creation. This is why our sin is such a big deal. Because it threatens to break everything apart. We are inherently unholy. And by our rebellion against God, we attempt to loose the world from its holy and healthy moorings. God, God's holiness is dreadful to us, 
because it expresses itself towards sin, towards us who do evil as just and right and holy, consuming wrath. Right? If, if God uh, were to not offer us mercy, he would rightfully consume us with his wrath. That's what we deserve. This is why only one man could go behind the sacred veil into God's holy presence and why he had to go with a blood sacrifice. God, sometimes I think people look at evil in the world and they mistake God's delay in getting rid of all of it for his negligence. People see evil in the world and they, they think that that means that God either doesn't exist or that he doesn't care or that he doesn't have the power to get rid of it. Not true, he does exist. He does care. He does have the power to eradicate all evil. But for God to get rid of all evil this very second would mean that all of those outside of Christ would be gotten rid of. If he would have done it hundreds of years ago, it means all of us would have been eliminated. You see, God, this is Romans 3, uh, 21 through 26, God in his divine forbearance, in his great wisdom, in his great patience, doesn't get rid of all evil, but allows it to endure for a time. For a time period that he might both leverage it to bring himself glory, and so that he might rescue what was lost, you and I, his people. And he rescues us through Jesus Christ. Right? One man at the time of Israel could go behind this veil into the Holy of Holies. And at the time of Christ, because of what he did, what one man did, the God, what the God-man did, the veil has been removed for you and I. Right? The space between God and man created by sins has been forever filled up with the blood that flowed from Emmanuel's veins. The cross, the cross of Christ ripped the curtain apart because Jesus' death atoned for sins once and for all. Right? God is both just and justifier. He's just because he's perfectly holy and he will deal with sin. He will punish evil. And he's also merciful because he's made a way for humanity. He's made a way for you and I to be made right with him, to be a part of his holy and healthy creation. He's made us holy and healthy and whole through Jesus Christ. Matthew uh, records uh, the event of Jesus' death and the ripping of the curtain apart in his gospel. He writes it this way, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and rocks were split. The curtain tore because Jesus, who needed no sacrifice, offered himself up to make atonement for you and for me. The curtain tore. Welcoming all who will trust Christ the eternal high priest, into God's presence for salvation. We don't have to be protected from God's presence anymore. It doesn't threaten to consume the one who is in Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, you don't have to feel God's wrath because your sin has already been paid for. You've already been crucified with Jesus. It's amazing. 
You see, God demands that his people be holy in order to enjoy fellowship with him. But God supplies what he demands. He provides all that is necessary for relationship with him. He provides his son. I love the the verse in Hebrews 10, uh, verses 19 through 22. I love the whole section, but I'll only read these verses. This is what the author writes. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We get to enter God's presence with boldness. I mean, that's scandalous. We get to go before a king that could have rightfully killed us, but instead gives us mercy by coming and dying for us. We enter God's presence through Jesus who gave himself as a propitiation for our sin. the tabernacle, God's dwelling, his living place, taught the Israelites about how God could have fellowship with them. And it anticipated Jesus who came and tabernacled or dwelt or tented, that is, lived among us. Accordingly, as we've seen, uh, this was an expensive and extremely valuable project. Gold doesn't grow on trees, right? All of these things are very valuable, even the goat's hair that they're using. Which leads us to ask this question. How did Israel, a slave people brought out of Egypt, finance this whole deal, right? They couldn't go to the bank. This is what we read in in chapter 25, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Drop down to verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Now God just says this to Moses in chapter 25, uh, before he's able to bring all the instruction to the people. They screw up, we'll talk about that later. But after they've messed up and and kind of re-entered into covenant, reaffirmed their covenant, we read in chapter 35, uh, starting at verse 5, Moses tells this stuff to the people. This is what he says. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Down to verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Down to 21. And they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All the men and women, verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. 36, verse 2. And Moses called the craftsmen, every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come and do the work. And the craftsmen received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. 
so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. They're restrained from giving to the work of the Lord. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. I mean, how, how was this project funded? The generous giving of the people from their limited wealth. God does not force the worshipful giving of his people, but he does call for it. Such an offering requires sacrifice and reveals the hearts of the people. And the result of Israel's heart check is incredible. I mean, they bring everything that God requires. Gold, silver, bronze, colored yarn, skins, wood, oil, precious stones, spices, perfumes. Not only do they give their treasures to the Lord, they give him their time and their skill. The tabernacle will be built with the sacrificial giving and the generous working of God's people. Together they obey God so that his work and his will can be accomplished through them. What well, one might is, has to ask the question, why are they so willing to give? They don't have very much. Why give it up to the building of the tabernacle? Because they realize all that they have belongs to God anyway. Their freedom, their hope, their money, all of it has been given to them. Remember how God instructed them before they were leaving Egypt in 12, chapter 12, verse 36. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians let them have what they asked for. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. See, God supplies what he demands. He provides all that's necessary for relationship with him. The people have to be restrained in their giving because they understand that they're not giving to get God. They're not giving to get something from God, but that they already have God. And he is their treasure. He is greater than their gold and their goat's hair and their silver and their bronze. He's better than what they would be doing with their time otherwise. He is worthy of it all. They love and treasure God. Do you? For once, Israel serves us as a great example. They have to be restrained from giving. Now, I'm really happy to say uh, of our church that, that you all are good givers. Uh, one of the things that's always encouraged me uh, about our church is how faithfully we give financially. But, but as faithful as we've been, uh, I don't know that any of us would claim that we had to be restrained from giving. Right? It's just not a struggle that's come up yet. Uh, nobody's come to me and said, uh, Justin, I can't stop giving away my stuff. Jesus has met all my needs. I'm so satisfied in him. Should I sell my car and start walking to work? For the kingdom, like... like None of us are struggling with being restrained, I don't think, from giving. I'm also sure that uh, we haven't had the issue of having way too many resources, right? As wonderful a problem as that would be to have. We, we are good givers, 
But I do think the imperative of the gospel challenges, challenges us to be great givers. Notice the origin of Israel's generosity. It's emphasized repeatedly uh, throughout the text, and I tried to focus in on verses that, that revealed this. Their hearts move them. That's why they give. They're moved because of what God has done for them. What they know about God inspires them to joyfully give. Knowing what we know about the gospel, and we know far more than they did, should we not be moved to invest even more than they did with even fuller joy than they had? They understood that God supplies what he demands. They had been given the treasure of the Egyptians. And so they invested in God's tabernacle. But, but I think one of the things that was lost on them, or that they only understood a smidgen of, that they had saw that God had invested in them. He saved them out of Egypt. And so they were willing to invest in his purpose and in his kingdom. But they didn't know how he would invest in them even more. Friends, Jesus Christ, with radical and reckless generosity, invested in you by dying for you. Friends, our giving should have to be restrained. I mean, shame on us when we value our possessions and our time more than the kingdom of God. Shame on us when we're more concerned with our 401k and our retirement plans than we are with the kingdom of God. We've been given everything. Every blessing of heaven. Everything that rightfully belongs to God the Son, we inherit by grace. How can we possibly desire to not be generous? How could we possibly prefer greed to generosity as those who have received so much? I think sadly our, our giving is often limited by our greed or superficial percentages, 10%. Church, we must exercise wisdom in our giving, but we must also give sacrificially. When was the last time, and like I said, I think all of y'all are faithful, when was the last time you invested in the gospel so that you felt it? Right? As I asked myself this question this past week, I thought, I am, I'm guilty here. It's really easy to just give money and to not feel the giving. I mean, some Christians, uh, they'll make a habit of fasting a number of meals during the week, and then they'll add that giving on top of their normal giving so that they can feel that they're making a sacrifice so that the kingdom of God can move forward. And they do it so that they can feel the sacrifice, so that they can taste how they are involved in the building of God's kingdom. I think true gospel-type giving requires that we give something up. And so I, I want to implore you, I want to challenge you to invest more in God's kingdom. Again, it's important to recognize that for uh, some of us, this is not a financial matter, right? For, for some it is. But for, for many of you, this is a matter of giving your time and your skill when people are as blessed as they are in our country and in our culture, uh, oftentimes it is much easier to cut a check 
than it is to, to serve in children's ministry or to show up for a Bible study or a prayer meeting or a members meeting or to sign up for a ministry team. Some of you have been freeloading on the work of others. Some of you plan on freeloading. Stop it. The Christian life means investing all of your life, all of your life. You can retire from your job, but you don't get to retire from discipleship. You don't get to retire from taking up your cross daily, dying to self and living for Christ. There are more than a couple people that have been forced to serve in a number of roles for years and years because no one else is willing to invest their time. Praise God for these individuals. But it is time for some of you to start giving your time. It's time for all of the church to do the work of the church. So fill out those we'll serve sheets. I don't know, we might have already supposed to turn them in. Fill them out anyway, turn them in again. Serve. Think of how you might share your passions and your skills with others. Think about how you can create natural ministries here. Don't ask, how is the church going to reach out to the community? Reach out to the community. You are the church. You like knitting. Start a knitting group that meets once a month. I won't be there, but have fun. If you have a passion for the poor, start a feeding ministry. Gather volunteers to help you. You can can use the building to keep the food. Got plenty of space. If you like sports, host watch parties. Hey, I love college football Saturday. Have me over. Have other people over. Maybe you don't like me. Invite them, not me. I I don't know. Give. Invest in God's kingdom by investing in people. One of my friends in college used to always say, two things are eternal in life, God and people. And this is where we should invest our time, money, and skill. Where are you investing? The here and now Or the then and there? Are you investing in things that will matter eternally? I, uh, you know, I meant to have a better visual demonstration, but I couldn't find a giant piece of rope, and this is the best I got. Can y'all see that? Um, On this rope, there is a tiny red dot. Some of you probably can't see it, but it's right there. Y'all see that? Now, what I want you to do is imagine that the rope goes on forever and ever and ever without end. Amen. Right? This little red dot on this piece of rope represents the time that you spend living on this earth. The rest of it is eternity. What you do in this little blip, this little moment of time, determines the rest of eternity. Where are you investing? Invest wisely, friends. Love the, There's a quote, it's, maybe ruins this, I don't know. Uh, I love the movie Gladiator, and he gives this really riveting speech at one point, and he says, brothers, and everybody gets all pumped up, they have their swords, and he says, what we do in life echoes through eternity. And they all cheer and run into battle. That's true for you. What you do in this life will echo and impact eternity. Invest in what matters. Invest in Jesus and his kingdom. Let us imitate Jesus who supplied for us what God's justice demanded of us. 
Justice for our sin demanded life, and Jesus has given his for you. Relationship with God requires perfect righteousness. Jesus has given his perfect righteousness to you. God supplies what he demands. He provides all that is necessary for relationship with him. In response to God's radical generosity to us in the gospel, let us be a radically generous people. Jesus has invested in you. We should happily invest in him and his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we we don't have to go to a tabernacle to meet with you anymore. That we don't have to be uh, fearful of your presence, but that we can truly delight in it. That we can sing for joy because a day in your courts, a day in your presence is better than thousands elsewhere. Because you are all satisfying. We thank you for the cross by which we have relationship with you. We, we are broken people, all of us. None of us is worthy. None of us is worthy of heaven. None of us is worthy of the delights we get to experience at your right hand and we'll get to experience even more fully forevermore. But as we live in the here and now, God, we ask that you, you would help us to live as your people, which means trusting you with, with everything, with our hearts, with our community, with our our money, with our time. And so we ask that as you fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would also direct us that we might live according to the pattern that you've set out for us in the Scriptures. That we might truly be lights in a dark world who show others the way into your presence. And that we might do this by investing wisely so that you might be known. Lord, thank you for allowing us to know you. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.